Welcome back this evening. We appreciate your attendance as we uh, continue on our theme of or our series rather on Sunday nights called Unswerving, the stories of bold faith. Uh, and I think I've explained before that my, there's not really a, a rhyme or reason to the stories that I choose, but as of recent, I've been trying to connect the stories from what we're talking about on Sunday morning and, and trying to find someone who personifies what we are talking about uh, and pursue it to our Sunday morning theme. Someone who personifies, who lives that out, who fleshes that out for us so that we can get a better picture. If you listen closely this morning, you'll remember that I mentioned uh, three characters. I mentioned Daniel and I mentioned David, and I mentioned Job. And Job is the one I want to talk about this evening, in particular because of his reaction and his unique response to some absolutely horrific trials and tribulations. I think there's a lot of good for us to learn. As we've said before, our theme verse is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And we've said over and over again that, that it's that those last five words in particular, he who promised is faithful. That these stories of faith, inevitably we, we find people who are imperfect, who fall short, who don't uh, measure up to the standard that God has. Why are they in there? The answer is because of their faith in a God who's perfect, a God who always measures up, a God who never gives up, a God who was fully faithful and trustworthy. And we'll see that as we go through. Sometimes preachers get overly excited about the lesson, uh, more so than his audience may. And uh, this one in particular, I just love the book of Job. And so I began pouring myself into the study, and when it was all said and done, I had a sermon that was probably going to be just over an hour. And uh, there's a problem with that because I'm trying to get you guys to be thankful and gracious this time of year, and I knew that you would not with an hour-long sermon. It doesn't matter how life-changing it is, if it's an hour long, uh, the people will revolt, and uh, that is not in the text, but it's an unspoken rule. So what I have decided to do is break this sermon, this message, into two parts that I hope will be helpful. I really don't intend to do a textual study of the entire book, but we're going to focus really in on just chapter 1, and before we get to that, talk about who Job was and why he was significant. So we'll start with a little bit of background on the book of Job. Uh, Job, if you uh, remember your Bible class, or maybe you were taught this in Sunday school or youth group, it, it falls into a genre of literature known as the books of poetry, uh, also called the wisdom literature. And this includes Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Now, it's odd because the type of wisdom that we get in Job is very different from the type of wisdom that we get from Proverbs, 
from Ecclesiastes. Uh, Oswald Chambers said, <clears throat> uh, he gave this concise summary to that, this genre of literature. He said, the Psalms teach us how to worship. The Proverbs teach us how to live. Ecclesiastes teaches us how to enjoy life. Song of Solomon teaches us how to love. And Job teaches us how to suffer, which, as you may guess, is probably the least popular among the ideas. If you get into discussion with an atheist or an unbeliever, almost first of order is the problem of suffering. How do we deal with a good God who lets bad things happen? If he's really all-knowing and he's really all-powerful and he's completely good, then what's, what's up with the mess that is our world? Job is a, it's not an answer that's easy to take, but I do believe Oswald Chambers is right. If you look at it correctly, we understand correctly how to suffer. As with other books of the Bible, uh, the title of, whoops, uh, whoa, you don't want to know that much that quick. You can't handle that. Okay. Whew. I want to move too quick here. Slow it down. Uh, I've got to get to the full hour. <laughs> uh, Job, the book of Job, bears the name of the uh, narrative's primary character. The, the name is probably derived from a Hebrew equivalent word for the uh, meaning persecution which I think was, you know, Job was well-named. Uh, but some people will use that to say, well, it's just an allegory and it has to do with the meaning of suffering, but it didn't really happen. And there's a problem with that, as we mentioned with other stories before, that if it didn't really happen, then, then a whole lot of other biblical writers were liars. So we do believe that it really happened. Uh, we do not know who wrote the book. Uh, no one really knows. The book... Even though it's named Job, it does not indicate the author was Job. Uh, and it's, he would be an unlikely candidate anyways because the book's message rests on the basic fact that Job is ignorant of the events that occurred in heaven as they related to his ordeal. So if Job had known the conversation between God and Satan that preceded his suffering, uh, it, he surely wouldn't have gone through what he went through with his friends and later his out towards God. So, lots of different people have guessed whether it was Elihu or Solomon or Isaiah or Hezekiah or a Jeremiah's scribe named Baruch. Uh, but at the end of it, with all those really smart guys, it's a guess. Nobody really knows. It is to be said with certainty, one commentary said, that the author was a loyal Hebrew who is not strictly bound by the popular creed that assumed suffering was always the result, the direct result of sin, which I, I thought was true. I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> They're trying to speed me up in the sound booth. Okay, let's move on. Uh, number uh, number three, the date. The because the author is unknown, that makes it very hard to date the book. When was it written? Some some clues within the book. Job's age was likely close to about 200 years. And if you figure the fact that he had children that were married, and then it says 
in uh, chapter 42, verse 16, that he lived another 140 years after his suffering. Um, the fact that there's so much patriarchal organization of the family, uh, the mention of the Chaldeans being uh, sort of nomads and, and they weren't yet dwelling in cities, the fact that Job's wealth is measured in livestock rather than silver or gold or any type of currency, uh, the, the fact that Job seems to take on a priestly duty for his family, uh, and complete silence about Abraham and Israel and the Exodus and the law of Moses. Uh, but Job did know about Adam and the great flood. And so all of these seem to roughly put it uh, somewhere after the Tower of Babel, but before or with con- or contemporaries of uh, Abraham. So he may have lived about the same time. Um, But these are just clues that we can use to infer what the date of the book was was written. Was it historically true? James chapter 5 verse 11 says, "As As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So, uh, yes, we can trust that the, the, the events in there are historically true and biblically accurate. There are other places that, where it's referred to. You should know the first point well by now. Uh, the uh, other New Testament writers, including in the book of Romans, the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, mention Job as well. So, these show that... He was a real person, and that the real events transpired. Now, turn to the book of Job, if you're not already there. We're going to be reading along through the first chapter. I'm not going to do it all at once. We're going to take it in chunks. Job chapter 1, and we're going to start... Verses 1 through 5. In the land of Uz, there was a, lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. All right, the first thing that we see is Job was absolutely a blessed man. And I use that in sense in the certainly in the physical sense, but also in the spiritual sense. Uh, he was of the land of Uz, which is referred to later in the book of Jeremiah. We know it was a walled city that it had gates. Where exactly it was, we don't know. Somewhere in the east, uh, southeast of the Dead Sea, probably, and, and likely near a desert. Now, how do we know those things from clues that we pick up in the text? But we know it was a great enough city to have a wall and gates, and so that tells you that there was commerce and business, and uh, it was a a thriving city. And in that city, he would have been a well-known man. He was of extraordinary character and integrity, which, by the way, when I study successful, blessed people, 
in the biblical world or in our world, what you will inevitably come back to is very high levels of character and integrity. I think there's a lesson there for us. He's described as blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. <clears throat> we didn't read it yet, but we will. God himself says of Job, there is none like him on the earth, which is a high, high compliment and a word of praise from your creator, if you didn't recognize that all as well. He was also blessed with a large family and many possessions. Uh, as we read, seven sons and three daughters, very wealthy with lots of sheep and camel and yoke of oxen and female donkeys. And not only was it a large family with a lot of wealth, but unlike large families with a lot of wealth, there seems to be a lot of harmony and unity because the families are having each other over with regularity. You do it probably twice a year. Getting ready to do it this week. Getting ready to do it a month from now. And usually that's a stressful time. And Job's family was, a, was one that they did it uh, often and uh, rotated. So they got along is what we can tell. He was well respected for his character and also for his success. This man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And and commentators said the, the term, the people of the east, means everyone living east of Palestine. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, reminds us of a blessed man. It says this, Blessed is the man who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. I was thinking about how blessed Job was in the comparison of the psalm that says the righteous man is like a, a tree planted by streams of water. Out in the parking lot, in the, the little grassy medians, we have these trees that were planted. And they were planted, I presume, when the building was built. And I can remember uh, in 2001 when I came, because my, my office looks out over the parking lot. It's a beautiful view of asphalt just everywhere but these trees i can remember them being weak and and when they were younger they would be blown by the wind and and they were much more susceptible to uh, disease and insects and all of that but now as i look out i see those same trees that have been well watered and fed and they're strong enough now i don't know if you you know you could probably still take them out but it'd take a good size vehicle to pull them out because those roots have gone down and their trunks are thicker. Uh, they, they have grown with time, and now they're much less susceptible to the world around them because they've been watered, because they've been well-fed. So keep that picture in mind when you think of Job. He would have been a mighty oak with his, deep, uh, his roots down deep, uh, and he had a, a, a reputation of character and integrity. The Lord knew him as being like none other. He was the spiritual leader of his house. As an example of his piety, in verse uh, 4 and 5, it mentions when he, he kind of says, you know, perhaps in this moment when my children were having these parties, they would do something, you know, take in too much wine, get, or, or just go over the board, overboard and, and curse God in their hearts. Even on... On such a thought that it might happen, Job was righteous enough to go and offer a sacrifice on their behalf. Uh, I don't know how your parents treat you when you mess up. I'm not sure if they do preemptive punishments or not. But, um, 
Job would go and punish an animal and make sacrifices. An animal lost its life because Job was righteous enough to say, on the possibility that my children might have done wrong the night before, I'm going to make an offering to God. That, that tells you something about his, um, his deep love and reverence for the Lord. These uh, kind of offerings were common in the patriarchal age, and so that's, again, another clue to point back to what time uh, Job must have probably lived in, what covenant he lived under. He was an upright and blameless man, and he was, but that does not mean he was sinless or perfect. There is no such person. Now, this is interesting. Um, James chapter 1, verse 17 says this. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting shadows. As we discover or we look into Job's life, we see that he was very much blessed. But even as good as he was, he wasn't perfect. Only the things which are from God and God himself can be called perfect. And he doesn't change like the shifting shadows. He's one that you can put your hope in and your trust in completely. And you're not going to be let down. Um, no matter how good people are, you put your trust in people and eventually they'll let you down. Because that's the nature of people. God is not like that. And Job, though he was not perfect, he put his hope and his trust fully in one who was. Um, one commentator had this to say, and I thought it was a good visual. He said, view Job as a pitcher of water. Job had been so worked upon by the grace of God that his life was righteous and pure, and he had a reputation for, for being such. You could see right through the water. People looked at him, and they, they saw a pure man. But there was some sediment there that it was on the very bottom of the picture. Uh, some sediment of self-reliance, some sediment of pride. It wasn't huge and it wasn't damning, but it was there. And in the trials that he would face, God shook up the pitcher and the sediment colored the water. And you find Job saying some, some mistaken things about God and God's purpose. And God knew that it was there. And he knew that in shaking this godly, blameless man, there would arise the sediment, which often sinks to the bottom. So the last thing we hear from Job when, he, when he's answered by God is, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. When you compare it to the holiness and righteousness of God, no matter how good you are, no matter how pure you are, there is some sediment that comes up in the shaking. Now, some of you say, well, tell me you're a visual guy. Why didn't you get a picture? Well, I looked. I looked. I, but you need the perfect picture. And all the pictures we have around here are, you, they're not clear enough to see through. Um, so that's why I didn't do that. But um, he was a blessed man, but he was not a perfect man. He did rely on a perfect God. Number two, Job was bombarded by the enemy. If you... Go behind the scenes of Job's life, which is what we're going to do starting in verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming, roaming through the earth, going back and forth in it. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. 
He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Verse 9, does, he, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. There's a lot of stuff here, raises a lot of questions about what was going on and why this is allowed to happen. Um, first is, you know, the sons of God and the angels presenting themselves before the Lord. Does that happen on a regular basis? Does that, is that, is that a, uh, is this kind of a meeting of the celestial beings? Uh, some have inferred that. Again, it's all, all it is is a guess. We don't know. After Satan had been roaming through the earth, going back and forth in it, the name Satan, by the way, means adversary, enemy. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, stand firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the whole world. Now that's interesting that we, to me, have the same adversary that we've always had. God's people have always had the same adversary, and he's still about the same work. He's seeking those whom he may devour. And, and God's question, have you considered my servant Job, is a tremendous compliment. Have you thought about this guy? Now, is, he, is he like saying, hey, here, have, you know... Try, try getting Job. I think what he's saying is, t- take a look at this man. I know you've sought out many of my servants, but there is none like this servant of mine. So then he makes the ac- accusation, does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, he's blessed, so obviously he's going to be your servant. I mean, if you do all of that that you've done for him, I'd be your servant too. Does, not, does he not do it because of what he gets out of it? And the implication is that God is not worthy to be praised on his merits alone, but rather that he must bribe his servants in order for them to worship him and, and revere him and obey him. He says, in essence, you stop blessing Job and we'll see how faithful he is to you. Now, by such a test, Satan was seeking to prove, one, there is no such thing as unselfish piety. That Job was always, you know, he was the proverbial, you know, chasing the, the carrot hanging from the stick. He, God was just holding it out there. Of course he was going to move in the direction of the carrot. That men do rightly, this is his second uh, accusation, that men do rightly only when it is profitable to do so. And third, God is not worthy of service on the basis of his nature alone. Satan is not only accusing Job, but more deeply he's accusing God as well. Uh, it's an interesting consideration uh, that brings up the question, do you fear God for nothing? Is your faith self-centered? Is your trust in him based only on the blessings that he might give you, physically, spiritually, or otherwise? Uh, 
I think it's a good question for probing your own faith. Why do you have faith in the Lord? If you're suffering because of the enemy, be careful. Be very leery about blaming the wrong person. Many people, when they suffer and they go through trials, they, they call out to God, Why, God, why? And, and this whole interaction reminds us that that's the wrong question. That suffering doesn't come from God. It also reminds us of this simple truth in Ephesians chapter 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If you are a Christian and don't realize the battle you're in, you are exactly where the enemy wants you. He wants you to distrust God. He wants you to doubt God. He wants you to blame God. And when we step into those areas and those make those decisions, what we are doing is playing for the wrong team. We are helping the enemy do his job. So God accepts the challenge and he allows Job to be severely tried. Uh, not even, even more than what chapter 1 is. It gets worse. He attacks his health and... And he just tries to wring him out as much as he can. He allows, in this first part, Job to be anything he has to be taken, but not his person. What God is trying to prove in this moment is that there is such a thing as pure righteousness. That when people know him and love him and in a relationship with him, they do it not just simply because of the blessings, but they realize that they, have been, they do it from the blessings. There are people with a true devotion to God Almighty, and they do it because he is who he says he is, and not solely based on what they can get out of it. Third, even at rock bottom, Job looked up. In, in one day, he loses 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and their servants are lost to the Sabian Raiders, which sounds like a college football team. Uh, he, he loses 7,000 sheep and his servants to the fire from God of, from heaven. He loses 3,000 camels and their servants to the Chaldean raiders, which is the, uh, the opponent of the Sabian raiders, of course. He, he loses, above all that, his seven sons and his three daughters are killed in what seems to be a tornado. Now that, imagine just losing one of those things. Now I get, you and I don't relate well to losing oxen and, and donkeys and sheep and camels because that's not a part of our, but you know, just, just imagine your entire nest egg, your retirement, everything you have saved and have worked for your whole life, uh, that gets hacked and a, you know, Hacker gets in and takes all your money electronically, and it's gone. You, you check the balances, zero, 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 all the way across. And while you're looking, at, looking it up and you, you head to the bank to go look, go look into it, you have an electrical fire, and your home and all your possessions are burned up. And your children, when they hear about this, they, they come, man, we need to take care of parents, and so they come to check on you, and, and the flight that they get on crashes, and all of them are tragically killed. I mean, I don't know if you've had a day like that. I'm pretty sure none, no one has, but I'm sh I assure you that was a Monday. If one of those things happened, 
What would your faith in God be like at that moment? And, and whatever your answer is, I guarantee you it's far less than you think it would be. Uh, speaking as a guy whose job it is to be the guy that people come to when they have days like that. And the question is, why is God making me go through this? Job follows Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths smooth and straight. You say it's easy for, for Job to trust in the Lord in the beginning of chapter 1. But look at what happens in the second half of chapter 1, starting in chapter, uh, verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the uh, oldest brother's house, a messenger came in to Job and said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. And they put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Verse 18, While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and your daughters were feasting. And drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. When suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, this is how Job responds. Job got up and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell to the ground in worship. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. That's powerful. Quite easy to be faithful to the Lord when you're blessed. And you'll hear people say, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But they forget the last half. May the name of the Lord be praised. I don't know if I could do it. It's inspiring, that kind of example. That he mourns, he tears his robe, he shaves his head, he falls to the ground, but then he worships. In grief, he still praises God. He blesses the name of the Lord. He does not blame God. He takes the example of Psalm Psalm 121, which says this, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will, ne- he will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. 
you think, man, there seems a lot of things in that psalm that didn't hold true for Job. Ah, the story's not over yet. The story's not done. But we are for tonight. And so I want to leave you with the reminder that God is our refuge and ever-present help in time of trouble. And maybe you're going through, maybe not what Job did, but something similar to what Job would have went through. And you're really struggling with your faith and your trust in the Lord. Struggling with believing that He's there and that He cares. And I want to remind you with the words that I just said. The story's not over yet. God's still on the throne. As long as He's still on the throne, good things lie just ahead. If you are not ready to meet the Lord in eternity, and to step into eternity to go before His throne for judgment then you surely do not know and have the Lord Jesus. And if you don't, I want to ask you to think seriously about a decision tonight to have faith in Him, to turn away from sin, and to be buried with Him that you might have new life only through the blood of the Lamb. If you have that need, or if we can pray for you, encourage you, or help you in anything that you might be struggling with, come as we stand and sing.